Welcome to Understanding the UK National Security and Investment Regime. The introduction of the new investment screening regime will mark a watershed moment for the government's powers to intervene in corporate transactions. In this podcast series, we will be providing you with insight into what's driving the new regime, how it will operate in practice and its particular impact on those sectors most affected. This podcast is brought to you by DLA Piper. My name is Sarah Smith and I'm a partner in the firm's competition practice. I am delighted to be hosting this podcast series and will be joined by DLA Piper's competition, government affairs and sector specialists over coming weeks. In previous episodes, we have covered the political context for the new regime, discussed its legal background and considered the impact on the industrials, tech and transport sectors. In this episode, the sixth of the series, we discuss the impact of the regime on the public sector, including briefly reviewing the legal context, both generally and in relation to the public sector. To discuss this, I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Richard Bonner, a partner in the Intellectual Property and Technology team, and Martin Strum, a senior associate in the competition team. So, Martin, if I can come to you first. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the new regime has wide-reaching implications for M&A activity involving businesses or assets connected with the UK. Uh, We have discussed this before, but it would be helpful if you could give us a brief overview to frame our discussion on the public sector today. Certainly. So the new rules came into force on the 4th of January this year, and they give the government an ability to investigate acquisitions that could harm the UK's national security. And it's the first time the UK will have its own standalone regime for reviewing transactions on the basis of national security was previously done under the merger control regime. Under the new Act, some transaction, i.e. those where the target is active in one of 17 identified sectors, will be subject to a mandatory notification regime. And what that means is that transaction will need to be suspended before they can complete and they will need to be approved by the UK government. And the remainder of transactions will fall under what's called a, the voluntary regime, where parties can notify the transaction if they think that there's scope for it to give rise to national security risks. Now, this new regime applies to both acquisitions of what's called qualifying entities as well as qualifying assets, provided that the entity or asset is either from the UK or has some form of connection to the UK, such as making sales to UK customers, for example. And the level of control that the acquirer is getting must pass a certain threshold before the regime applies. Now, it's important to note, given that we're talking about a mandatory sector in this podcast, that the mandatory regime only applies currently to acquisitions of qualifying entities as opposed to qualifying assets. The regime provides for quite wide-ranging powers on, on the part of the government to intervene in transactions, and it can order transactions to be unwound or block acquisitions where it's identified concerns and it's not satisfied with the steps proposed by the parties to remedy that. The government is able to impose conditions on acquisition which raise national security concerns, including in some circumstances even ordering the unwinding of transactions or blocking them outright. In certain circumstances, there will also be civil or criminal penalties, particularly where transaction in a mandatory sector has not been notified before it's been completed. It is therefore very important for parties to carefully assess their transactions to see whether there is a national security angle and whether they need to notify the UK government before completing. 
Thanks, Martin. That's very interesting. And as you say, clearly parties to transactions will need to undertake careful assessment to determine whether or not they need to notify a a deal or not. And and, and even if not, consider whether they might want to notify voluntarily. And you've mentioned that we have these 17 mandatory sectors and that if the target operates in one of those sectors, that may give rise to a mandatory filing and that some of those sectors relate to the public sector. So, Richard, thinking about your public sector clients that are potentially caught by the mandatory sectors, what are they saying about the new regime? And are there any particular concerns or themes emerging in your in your discussions with them? Well, I suppose the first point is that it's not really the clients that are caught, it's the suppliers to them. As far as the clients, the public sector organisations are concerned, I don't really think this is a big game changer, if you're my honest opinion. As it currently stands, if you're a public sector client, then it's standard practice to have a change of control provision in your contracts with your suppliers and indeed through them down to key subcontractors as well. And I think we'll come back to that point a little later. So there already is quite a lot of uh, leverage and control over a change of control of your supply chain. And Maria Herrera touched on, on that last week when she talked about the defence sector. So generally speaking, I'd say for the public sector as a receiver of services, this is additional leverage. It's, you know, it's more, uh, I guess it gives us a broader view, but it doesn't really change the fundamentals other than the fact, of course, that the, the bar for control is quite a lot lower under this legislation than it would typically be under a standard government contract. For the same reason, I don't think that it's a massive game changer for suppliers to the public sector either. We'll come to the definition shortly, which is quite narrow, but just parking that for the moment, as I say, suppliers to the public sector will be quite used to notifying or changes of control in their organization to their public sector customers. So to that extent, yeah, to a large extent, it's kind of business as usual, I say, other than the, you know, the fact that the bar for change of control has been lowered somewhat. Yes, thanks. And, and as you say, we have discussed this previously with Maria Pereira in the context of the defence sector. So it's interesting to hear you say that actually those considerations are likely to arise more broadly for clients of companies supplying public sector, noting that, of course, those public sector bodies may be your clients. <laughs> so... Sarah, if I can just add, I mean, I, I think that the kind of, we will touch on this shortly, but the, you know, the title for this sector is almost misleading because it's critical suppliers to government, but actually, you know, the triggers are, are much narrower than simply being a critical supplier to government. Yes, absolutely. Well, should we talk about that in a bit more detail? As you say, one of the mandatory sectors is critical suppliers to government. And as I understand it, that only applies to direct contractors with government, i.e. prime suppliers, and excludes subcontractors who may be operating further down the supply chain. Do you think that this is sensible or does it create a potential enforcement gap? Um, I have to say I find it slightly puzzling. Generally speaking, Government is quite interested in its supply chain through to subcontractors. And we find that, you know, when you look at the way government contracts with its prime suppliers, as I said earlier, it will be interested in in understanding what happens further on down the supply chain. So I don't fully understand why they've drawn the line at uh, only at prime contractors 
obviously not not the same case where you fall in the defence sector as Maria discussed last week. So, so yeah, I do find that a little bit of a loophole. Although I think in practice, again, it probably it probably doesn't matter too much for two reasons. First of all, in most cases where government contracts with a with a prime supplier, it will have that flow down that I touched on earlier. And secondly, if the subcontractor has got um, security cleared staff or is processing secret or top secret material, then it will have its own direct arrangements with the relevant government department in terms of the, the holding of those information assets. So I, you know, I think there is redress for government in this, but from a policy perspective, I am slightly bemused by that. Yes, and particularly given, as you say, it isn't the same as this position for the defence sector. So presumably that's an intentional difference in approach that perhaps <laughs> without an obvious explanation. Martin, anything to add from a more practitioner perspective? Well, maybe not necessarily from a practitioner point of view, but I was going to add is that somewhat unhelpfully picking up on the difference that Richard noted about the different sectors and whether or not they include subcontractors. The government's consultation paper in relation to this particular sector, somewhat that they picked up on this problem or, or this issue about whether to include subcontractors within the scope of the sector. And they concluded that in order to keep it, quote unquote, proportionate, subcontractors would be excluded. But they didn't elaborate on just exactly what proportionate meant in this context and why it would be, by extension, disproportionate to include them. What they did touch on, and I'll I'll hand back to you, Richard, shortly, is there was a concern expressed by some participants in this consultation that if you cast a net wide and include subcontractors, it gives rise to a real risk that subcontractors who are active in a chain that ultimately ends with a critical supply to government wouldn't necessarily be aware of the fact that they are in that supply chain and to include them within the scope of a mandatory notification sector would, I I assume, using the government's own phraseology, be disproportionate or somehow unfair. And I'll hand back to you, Richard, whether you think that is a a legitimate concern that subcontractors might be unaware of of the fact that they are indeed a subcontractor to a critical government supply, whether this is not a real issue in practice. Well, I think it's it's absolutely right. The government seeks to be proportionate. But I think on this occasion, given how they have narrowed down the definition of critical supplies to government, I think that's a misplaced concern. So the the definition of critical supply to government is very, very narrow. You you might think it extends to suppliers of critical national infrastructure, but it does not. It simply extends to organisations which process or store secret or top secret material, which have list X accreditation, which means that their sites are accredited to hold government classified assets, or which have employees who are vetted at or above um, SC level. So my point is you don't really end up by accident or not knowing that those are the situations you find yourself in. You always know if you're processing secret or top secret material, you, know, you have to go through an accreditation process to get list X accreditation. The same, of course, applies to vetting of staff. So it's inconceivable to me that a subcontractor wouldn't realise that it, it fell within this category. But, you know, the broader point really is that it is quite a narrow category. It is, as I say, it is very much paired back to those national security considerations. And so, you know, if you're looking at to protect, say, critical national infrastructure in its broader sense, then you have to look at some of the other sectors 
And of course, that's the other point here is, is that although we're talking here about this sector and we'll talk about emergency services shortly, you can't look at any of these things in isolation. And you know, many or most suppliers which supply, we you know which qualify for this category may well qualify into one or more of the other categories as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and that is something that we are seeing in practice now the regime is in force and we are advising on transactions. It's often the case that we're looking at and considering a number of different potential mandatory sectors for, for clients operating in, uh, in sectors and spaces that touch some of these areas. As you rightly say, Richard, the actual definition of the activities within this sector, within the critical supplies to government sector, is very specific and quite narrow and something that we talked about previously in the context of transport which is another broad church but relatively narrow definition within the scope of of the NSNI Act is that this perhaps gives rise to some uncertainty and risk for those businesses that don't trigger a mandatory filing because they're not within this narrow definition they're not processing or storing secret or top secret material etc but that they are perhaps uh, yeah, a subcontractor to a prime subcontractor or, or are engaged in activities that potentially raise national security concerns in a sort of common sense kind of a way, even if they're not caught within the mandatory regime. And then that leaves them with the question of whether or not they should do a voluntary notification. And perhaps that's actually a more difficult position for them to be in than if the mandatory sector was more broadly defined and, and they clearly had to make a mandatory filing and that decision is taken out of their hands. If we could move on now, as you as you mentioned, to the other sort of clearly public sector mandatory definition, which is suppliers to the emergency services. Martin, do you want to talk through a little bit about what that definition covers? Yeah, certainly, Sarah. Um, so it covers uh, quite a broad um, range of different emergency services entities. So it's the Border Force, the British Transport Police Force, the Civil Nuclear Constabulary Fire and Rescue Authority, the Ministry of Defence Police, the National Crime Agency, police bodies and police force. And some you know, exceptions to that is the ambulance services providers are only covered insofar as they relate to electronic communications network or electronic communications services. And during the consultation process for this particular sector, there was also mention of the Coast Guard and air ambulance charity sector, which are not covered. But yeah, it's it's covers quite a broad range of different emergency services. And you mentioned a couple of of exceptions there. Richard, is there anything else to note from your perspective about this definition? No, I think it broadly makes sense to me. I mean, Martin flagged the issue of ambulance service providers. And they're, they're, I suppose, quite unusual as an organisation or organisations because on the one hand, they're part of the NHS, aren't they? But on the other, they are also part of the, you know, the blue light emergency services. So, I can see why they fall partly within this regime and also why it's limited to the provision of electronic communications networks or services, which I think is broadly the, you know, the airwave service that currently supports the blue light services and, and in the future will be the ESM. Yeah, that does make sense. Martin, there's no materiality threshold in this sector. How does that play out in practice? Yes, I think that's an interesting point, Sarah, because if we go back to the previous sector we talked about, critical supplies to government, there's similarly no materiality threshold. But I think it's important in that sector that we we recognise that it only covers quite a narrow list of entities like we talked about, entities with secret or top secret material that are on the list X accreditation or has vetted above a certain security level. Now, from my perspective, it makes perfect sense that 
In that particular sector, the contract value or materiality is not really relevant to a national security question because these entities will by definition have access to quite sensitive material. So the fact that they might work on a very small contract isn't entirely relevant. Whereas if we move to the um, supplies to emergency services, it's a broader scope. So it talks, for example, about supplies of component parts or products of an unmanned aircraft. Now that to me doesn't inherently have national security considerations. So you can have a situation where you have a supplier of, you know, a very small part on an isolated basis to an unmanned aircraft, and all of a sudden they were in this mandatory regime. And I think it's an interesting difference between the two because there's nothing inherent about the definition of suppliers to emergency services that means that agnostic of the contract value, this has national security implication, which I think is the case in the previous sector we talked about. So I do think there's, there's an argument to be made that perhaps some form of either materiality threshold or a much tighter definition of the activities caught by the sector might have been appropriate. So finally, Richard, and, and you touched on this a little earlier when we were talking about the fact that um, for certain transactions, a number of different mandatory sectors might be potentially relevant. And we will be talking next week about the communication and digital infrastructure sector. But it seems that that may be an area where there is real potential for overlap with the critical supplies to government and, and emergency services sectors that we've been talking about today. Do you have any thoughts on that? You can't put a pound's value on security or national security. So I don't think there's any argument for a kind of monetary value on the category we discussed five minutes ago. But, you know, as far as this is concerned, because it's, you know, expressed in much broader terms, I can certainly see the case for some kind of de minimis value or, or probably, you know, a, a kind of tighter definition that brings it more obviously back to that, you know, those national security issues that lie at the heart of this legislation. Absolutely. That's all very interesting. And we will have to see how things play out. And it may be that there are refinements to the regime as we go along. And perhaps you've uh, touched on some potential changes that could be considered in the future. So all that remains is for me to say thank you very much to Richard and Martin for your contributions today. Thank you to you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of DLA Piper's series, Understanding the UK National Security and Investment Regime. Look out for episode seven next week, where we will be discussing the implications of the regime on the communication and digital infrastructure sector. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.